founders, whether they're bootstrapped or raise funding, they eventually get tired of what they're doing and they want to move on to the next thing. And the millions of dollars in liquidity from these assets we, we build is so much better oftentimes in cash in your pocket. Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This week, I'm talking about MailChimp selling for $12 billion to Intuit. It's the largest exit for a bootstrapped company ever, at least from what I can find. My understanding is it's a 50-50 breakdown of stock and cash. This is truly an incredible day for not only bootstrapped founders, not that we aspire to grow to this level, but to know that we have potential to get to this level without raising institutional funding. I saw it mentioned in several places that the co-founders of MailChimp, Ben and Dan, didn't raise any institutional funding, it said. But I am curious what the story is behind that. Did they raise friends and family? Did they raise kind of a fund strapped round? Certainly they didn't take money from accelerators because they launched before accelerators existed. Y Combinator was the first one, of course, in 2005 or six, and MailChimp was born in 2001. But this is such a testament to the profitability and the scalability of software. Not only software, but subscription software, because software before, let's say, MailChimp and Basecamp and you know the other SaaS models that we see today was really expensive on-prem software. The, you know, the companies that grew big selling these contracts were Oracle, Microsoft, and Adobe, and other companies that charged literally seven figures or eight figures for multi-year contracts. And companies like MailChimp were really the early drivers of this lower monthly subscription fee software. And so no fewer than a half dozen people have reached out to me over the past few days asking for my opinion, not only because I've been a longtime fan of MailChimp, but because I started Drip and entered the ESP space, the email service provider space, and essentially... You know, people say, is MailChimp a competitor of Drip? And I would always say, well, Drip's a competitor of MailChimp because let's be honest, MailChimp was sending a billion emails every weekday. And while I had thought that they crossed a billion in annual recurring revenue, turns out the most recent numbers, I believe from Forbes, are 800 million in revenue. And I just want to pause there for a moment and think about that. This is not 800 million in valuation. As many startups we hear about these days grow to 800 million or a billion in valuation and are still doing literally 10 million, 20, 30 million in ARR. What an incredible feat to reach that level of revenue without taking any substantial outside funding. It's just really unheard of. The best estimates I've heard, and there are no confirmed numbers on this, but the best estimates I've heard on Basecamp's revenue is that they are low nine figures, that they're 100 million, 150 million, and highly profitable because they only have 50 employees. So they're throwing off, Jason Fried said from the microcom stage, tens of millions of dollars in net profit per year. And that, that's an amazing business. MailChimp, if all of that is true or in the ballpark, like MailChimp is the next level. It's almost another order of magnitude larger. So if you say MailChimp's revenue is around 800 million, so they sold at 12 billion, that's a 15 times ARR multiple, which is which is good. That's a nice healthy multiple, I would say. Obviously, it's higher than the 4 to 6, 4 to 10 multiple you might commonly see in SaaS apps that are growing, you know, doubling each year and between whatever 1 in 30, 1 in 40 million, but 
as you get bigger, the multiples tend to increase. You know, you can ask my co-founder of Tiny Seed, Anor Volset, who is is in that space and knows so much about SaaS exits because he's been part of advising so many SaaS founders, uh, you know, in exiting that a 15x error multiple at this level is it's high, but it's not unheard of. This is realistic. Someone wrote in to this very podcast at a smaller ARR multiple, and I forget if they were at half a million or it may even have been just a couple hundred grand in ARR and they sold for you know a 30 times ARR multiple. And at that point, it's more of a strategic acquisition and the money, the multiples become meaningless, I think at, at small numbers, but this is quite an exit. And I'm going to start with kind of my first thought on this is I think the multiple is good. I think they could have gotten more on the public markets probably, but in their shoes, you know, going public is not an exit. A lot of people don't understand that. Going public is just another funding event. It is a liquidity event for a portion of your shares and you can sell some of your shares once you're public. But that doesn't mean that as founders, you get liquidity on all your shares and it doesn't mean that you're bought out and it doesn't mean that you walk away. Usually you're then running the company. So even if they could have made five or six billion each and they could have made seven or eight billion each doing an IPO. If you don't want to deal with Sarbanes, Oxley, and all the craziness around being a public company, then why would you do that? So I heard some people kind of you know commenting on that of why wouldn't they just go public? And it's just a different animal. I'm going to be honest. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that Mailchimp sold. In my head, I never thought that they would sell or IPO. Not because anyone told me that. It was just the impression I had. I used to use Basecamp and MailChimp as the examples of, I would say, the statement, everyone exits eventually. Everyone sells eventually. That's usually the case. And then I would bring up the counterexamples. Well, except for Basecamp and MailChimp, really. Those two have been around a long time and haven't sold. But usually, founders, whether they're bootstrapped or raise funding, they eventually get tired of what they're doing and they want to move on to the next thing. And the millions of dollars in liquidity from these assets we, we build is so much better oftentimes in cash in your pocket. I also used Drip and Bear Metrics. These were two others that I remember saying, probably never going to sell. And yet both have sold at a certain point, whether it's getting burned out, whether it's getting tired of it, whether it's seeing a number in front of you that can pay for both your kids' college funds and mean you never have to work a day in your life again, even if you know you're going to work, you don't have to. And you have the freedom to work on what you want. When you see that number on a piece of paper, it's a really interesting, really interesting choice. So that's my, that was my first reaction when I heard. I was surprised that they were considering it. I actually saw an article of a rumor that they were considering selling a few weeks back. And at first I didn't believe it. And then I thought, you know what? Something must have changed for the founders. Because if you think about it, let's say they were operating at $800 million ARR. I just chuckle because it's just so crazy. They only had 1,200 employees. And if we do even loose math and just say 200 grand a year, 300 grand a year, you know, was the cost for each of those employees, you're talking 240 million to 360 million. We throw server costs, we throw whatever other costs on, you know, SaaS at scale can be 30 to 50% net profit margins. So if we say 800 million, you're talking 240 to 400 million dollars a year being thrown off and it's bootstrapped or effectively bootstrapped, mostly bootstrapped as I often say on the show. So the founders certainly are not hurting for money. So I don't feel like they sold for the money. My guess is they each have enough in the bank that they never have to work again and they probably had that a decade ago or more. So something must have changed. And obviously they haven't talked about it and they can't right now, right? They have to make the employees 
feel okay. And we'll get into that a little later that there is, you know, some anger and outrage around that, that I've, I've seen reported. They have to make customers feel okay. They have to make Intuit feel okay. You know, I, I think the deal doesn't close for six months or nine months deal of this size. I imagine that's, that's par for the course. But realistically, when I read the article or the rumor, I thought, you know what, this is right. Everyone sells eventually. And I'm not saying that to say everyone should sell. I'm not saying if you run a great business that you should sell. But the pattern that I see is that at a certain point, ambitious, creative, motivated startup founders, they want to move on to their next thing and having that liquidity or not having the thing that they have to manage, maybe they're bored of it. Maybe they just want to get onto the new phase of their life. I mean, it's incredibly hard to build these companies. That's what we talk about here every week on this show. And to be able to cash out and to move on to the next phase of your life, whether that next phase is starting another app, whether it's starting a nonprofit, whether it is instituting worldwide change, trying to beat malaria like Bill Gates, whatever it is, in my opinion, founders who have worked hard on their businesses, who have taken care of their employees, hopefully, again, we'll talk a little bit about that, who have given back to their community, like I know the MailChimp founders have, who have built an incredible business and worked hard for 20 plus years on it, me, I don't begrudge them as a thing. My understanding of the MailChimp founders, and look, I've had limited interactions with Ben Chestnut. I think he's a stand-up guy. I respected him when he was a blogger. Somehow he and I and Darmesh and Patio 11 and Peldy were all blogging at the same time. This is like 2005 to say 2009. And so I noticed them. Somehow I'm on their radar. And again, I've emailed Ben Chestnut a dozen times in the past, you know, 10 years. Oftentimes it's to invite him to speak at a microconf, which he gracefully declines, but he's entertained the idea and said, look, I'd be interested, but I have this, you know, this thing that is at that time. And I also emailed him around the time that Drip was going to be acquired because we had inbound interest from several parties. And I did email him and essentially let him know that, you know, and said, hey, if, if this is something that, that's on your radar, if you're interested in talking about it, let's do it. And he said, you know what, we're not interested right now, but we've had a lot of inbound acquisition uh, over our lifetime. And I'd be happy to give you advice if you have any questions. And again, to me, my impression and all of my interactions is that he's a stand-up guy. He takes care of his employees. I know that they give back to the community in Atlanta. And I have a lot of respect for what they built. And I always did. You know, there were competitors that we had with Drip where I thought their product was I thought they ran businesses. I thought they took advantage of their customers, auto upgrading and not auto downgrading, just doing otherwise shady things, copying competitors, claiming it was their own, whatever. I never thought MailChimp did that. I had respect for them as competitors and just respect for them as a business. So as with any big change like this, anytime a lot of money changes hands or someone gets rich suddenly, someone's going to be angry. Someone's going to blame that person or find out perhaps why they don't deserve it. And look, I don't know. I don't know if it's jealousy or I don't know. Maybe maybe it, it really is right. But I'm going to be honest, the anger and outrage that I saw around this made me a little bit angry and a little bit outraged. I think people on social media oftentimes go there to vent and I, look, I get it. If, if I worked for MailChimp and suddenly I found it, and I was bought into the vision because again, MailChimp, great company. I've heard it's a great company to work for. I've had a couple friends I know work there. They love it. And if suddenly I found out I was going to work for Intuit, I would be upset too because I don't like Intuit. And I don't like that they lobby the US government to keep us from having easy free tax filings. And I think QuickBooks is a really crappy piece of software. And I think most of what Intuit makes is pretty crappy. And MailChimp, I'll agree, has gone a bit off brand in the past few years. I don't see the... Freddie, I think, is the is the chimp himself. I don't see him as much. 
I feel like the software got more complicated. I feel like the UX got much more difficult to use. And I haven't logged in in years because I, I, you know, I use Drip. I haven't used MailChimp in years. And I logged in a few months ago. I believe it was to export some subscribers. And I, I was disappointed with the UX. And I always thought that they were pretty good with UX before then. They had some mixed bags. They did try to bolt on automations around the time, you know, as automations came up and Drip became a thing. It hasn't all been sunshine and rainbows, but I'll admit the last few years I've stopped recommending MailChimp to people just getting started because of the complexity of it. But I kind of think that's where they wanted to go. I have no inside information, but I'm guessing they topped out. Like you can only get so big and you just have to start clawing and getting other pieces of the market because they added landing pages. They added an ad builder, like Facebook ad builder. They just kept going pre-email and after email in terms of marketers and what they needed. And instead of acquiring it, they they built a lot of it in-house and kept adding, I, I, I'm going to say bolted things on, that feels a little more pejorative than I want it to, but I definitely felt MailChimp being different over the past three or four years than it was, let's say, the prior 15 years, just in terms of the quality of the product and the complexity of it. But the bottom line is, I think they built a great business, an incredible business, and this is a feat that, you know, how many other bootstrap businesses have reached this amount of revenue, and zero others have sold for this level of purchase price, is my understanding. And so if I worked for MailChimp and then suddenly I learned I was working for Intuit, I would feel bad. And I understand that. And I can understand being angry and wanting to vent. From the other side, it's kind of become cool or popular to you know hate rich people, to hate when people get rich. It's not like Ben Chestnut and his co-founder inherited a bunch of money like they won. They built an incredible business and they were the folks who figured out free. They figured out how to do freemium in ESPs and no one else was able to do that before them. A few were able to do it afterwards, but not to the same degree. One of the complaints I heard from employees, or again, I heard people quoting them. So this is like second, third hand, but it it said, you know, when I was hired, we didn't get stock options. We didn't get equity because they said, we will never sell or go public. And I'm going to guess that isn't what they actually said. My guess is if I were in their shoes pretty calculated, pretty careful with words, I could see saying, I have no plans to sell. We have no plans to sell this company. So equity doesn't make sense. Because if you start giving folks equity, they do want a return on that eventually. And usually it's four years, five years, seven years, 10 years, there's a number. You, a lot of people don't want to wait 20 years to cash out on some equity, you know, that they, again, they, that they got 20 years ago. Usually once you start giving equity, that is a signal that you're going to sell. And if they didn't plan to sell, then profit sharing, bonuses, higher salaries, which is what MailChimp did, that is what I, that's what I would be doing. I don't plan to sell. Plans can change. I think in startups, in business, I think any of us know that the flexibility and just the willingness to, to not hold on to something. So, you know, not have the fixed mindset in essence that, well, I said that once and so we can never change it. Like, I think that's a naive perspective. I know that folks working at MailChimp, these according to news reports, got really good salaries, got really hefty bonuses, 15 to 30% annually of their annual pay. And the working conditions were good. You know, it wasn't the craziness of a startup in terms of working long hours and low pay for equity. As someone pointed out in a Slack group that I'm in, it's a private founder Slack group, he said, I see enough of these articles that talk about the downside of equity and how Silicon Valley companies issue equity and then pay people lower, lower than they otherwise should, and then it goes bust and it's a big trick. And so equity sucks. And then in this case, everyone was getting cashed out 
all the time, right? So people were getting, again, these at or above market salaries plus a bonus plus whatever, you know, whatever other money flowed their way. I mean, there was like a really generous matching 401k matching. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you expect from Fortune 500 companies. And they were doing that. They were putting out the cash as it came in. They had the profit. So it's kind of cool that they did it. But that's, I guess I think of that as being in lieu of having stock options. I also read that $300 million in stock will go to the employees. And while I don't know how that will be divided, that's $250,000 per employee. Obviously, I'm imagining some will get more and some will get less. It's a non-trivial amount of money. If I were a naysayer, I would instantly say, well, that's nothing. $300 million is nothing compared to the $12 billion that the founders got. You're right, it's not. They built the company. It's kind of the way it goes with with startups. Everything is is not equal and fair. There was more risk and there was, you know, I don't know, more years put in, more work, whatever you want to call it. I do see that side of the argument, but I think if you're working there, that that's, that's what you're on board for. I can imagine being disappointed that it's sold, that you don't want to work for Intuit, but I don't think you can then go back and say, oh, I really wanted equity. I, I, it just doesn't work for me. To be honest, though, the real bummer, I think, is folks who maybe worked there and then left. You know, let's say you left 10 years ago, five years ago, two months ago, you walked away with nothing. And that is one of the trade-offs with granting equity, granting stock options, or profit sharing. I talked about this in an episode. Just go to startupthrestofus.com, type in profit sharing, and that episode will come up. It was maybe six months ago. It's actually become one of the more popular episodes where I just walked through the pros and cons of each of these. And one of the pros of profit sharing is people get cash and they don't have to sit around and wait for this funny money. You know, realizing equity in a private company is illiquid, it means nothing until there's an exit or a liquidity event versus here, here's some cash. But the downside of that is if you leave and then the company sells later, you don't, you don't get any more money because you got your money out as it was going. And that is one of the downsides of it. That's the trade-off. But you know, again, I do feel for some folks, I bet I can imagine there being someone who worked there for 10 or 15 years and got their pay while they were doing it and then left and then didn't get any rewards of the sale. That's tough. But I also, you know, I guess I keep coming back to the same thing. You, you can tell how I feel about it. I feel like I'm saying my same opinion over and over is I get it. I don't think the founders did anything wrong. And knowing what I know of the founders, I think they will do great things with the money. I think they will make sure the employees are taken care of. I think to the best of their ability, they will make sure the customers are taken care of. And I think that they will go on to, they're not going to sit on this money and go sit on a beach in Tahiti. My guess is they will invest in their community. They will invest in causes that, that can change things, whether it changes things in their city, their state, their country, or the world. It's a lot of money and you can make a huge difference with, with that type of money. And I think they will. And as with most exits, I think in the short term, it won't make a huge difference. And I think in the long term, it will probably not be a net win for MailChimp's customers. You know, I, I haven't seen Intuit treat its customers particularly well over the years. I don't think their software is that great. They just happen to be mostly in a monopoly position. MailChimp has always competed well and, like I said, had good software with some, I think, changes over the past you know, three, four, five years as I think they, they deviated from that initial vision. But I, I don't see how this makes MailChimp a better product. And I don't see how long term, you know, it's going to be a win 
for its customers, which is unfortunate. But this is the cycle of, of business. This is a cycle of software, right? You build software and you can move fast and add all these great new features in the early days. And then as it becomes more mature, it becomes a teenager and then it becomes an adult. And then frankly, software by the time it's even, what, 10, 15 years old is basically, you know, it's like dog years maybe. I mean, it, it just gets old. It gets hard to make changes, especially as a team grows, especially as the code base grows. And, and that legacy that you can't undo, that technical debt you can't change, winds up tying you to you know, a specific way of doing it. And so that is a cycle of business. And then a new wave of products comes along that is able to do it a little better and they're able to move faster because they're nimble in their early days. And then those products age over time. And that's, that's just a cycle of business. So I don't feel like this is catastrophic, certainly for the space. I, I'm glad there's a lot of competitors in the space. It's a very large space, email marketing and marketing automation. But that's my thought. If I was a MailChimp customer right now, I'd be thinking, ah, I'm going to stick around for a bit. But obviously, as time goes on, you know, we'll, we'll be able to see the impacts that this has on it. A couple more points and then I will wrap. One thing that I'll say is if you're starting a company, never tell people that you're never going to sell or go public. I'm not saying they did that. <laughs> Other people have said, employees said they were under the impression they would never sell or go public. My guess is they didn't say that. But that would be a mistake if you were to do that because you know what? Everyone sells. <laughs> Everyone sells eventually. And I don't mean everyone in terms of 100%, but it's like 95, 99%. Like we just sell. We want to move on. I think I've already covered that. But, so don't make a promise or don't make an implicit commitment that you don't want to live up to. You can say, I'm growing this business for the long term. You know, you're going to get asked in an interview, what do you plan to do with XYZ company you're starting? It's like, I plan to grow for the long term. Uh, you know, I want to work on it for a decade or more. And I mean, that's, that's what you say because that's usually what you believe. And that's the way to build a great business. You don't build a business to flip it. But also, you don't want to promise someone internally, employees as you hire them, that you're not getting stock options because we're never going to sell. It's just not a smart thing to say, right? So take that as a lesson. Just be careful with that type of verbiage. My final thought is being an email service provider these days, it's getting kind of hard with inboxes, looking more and more at privacy, blocking open pixels. The effectiveness of email marketing will continue. It's certainly better than social media, but it's not as effective as it used to be. It's like doing SEO and having Google Analytics. It used to tell you which keywords people were using to find your site. And it doesn't anymore. Similarly, email marketing is going to have less and less data to go on. You can always track clicks, right? Because they click through to your website. But a lot of things are being blocked. Spam filters are getting better. And in fact, getting so good that they're actually kind of getting bad, right? These days, some of my emails are going to spam and that hasn't happened in a long time. There's promotions tab. There's all these things that are creating an uphill battle for email marketing. So I do wonder, again, I have no, no inside information, but you know, if, if I were them running it and I believe the founders are in their late 40s, maybe thinking about their next act after having worked on something for 20 years, which I have not worked on anything for 20 years aside from my marriage. That's it. Because Microconf's 11 years, Drip was five and a half from start to finish. I mean, I don't know many of you in the audience have worked on anything for 20 years. It's a long time and it's a hard problem, Right. Being an ESP is, is a non-trivial thing. I think at one point, after Derek and I had sold Drip, I told him, I'm never doing something that sends email again. There were just a lot of headaches with it, and I can't imagine what it would be like at that scale, you know, that MailChimp is at with that billion emails a day during the week. So what I can imagine is that in their shoes, maybe maybe there's just a major life change that one of them's going through. Who the heck knows? But 
I can see market forces being in the thought process there of what is the future? You know, what does it look like in 5, 10, 15 years? If anyone can see it coming, they can, right? They're right at the bleeding edge of the present, being able to see the effectiveness. Maybe they're seeing across the entire company, all the emails being sent, lower open rates, lower click rates, whatever, you don't know. But bottom line is it's a tough business to be in, I will admit. I can imagine that could play a part in it. And maybe, possibly, you know, they've taken the business as far as they can or want to. Um, I can imagine Intuit's market cap, I believe, is $120 billion maybe, $110 billion. And being able to go under the wing of that does give you more resources and a much larger customer base. I know MailChimp has a big customer base, but I believe Intuit across you know its companies has quite a bit more than that. And so, honestly, I remember when we sold Drip, thinking the lead pages customer base was substantially larger and we'd have a lot more resources. And I was actually motivated by that. It was super interesting. Obviously the liquidity for you know the founders was was great, but I was also interested to learn more things and to be on a bigger playing field. And maybe that could potentially have been appealing as well. I think it's a story that will unfold in the coming years. Honestly, my guess is we'll hear from Ben or his co-founder, whether it's through a talk at you know an event that we attend, whether it's podcast interviews or elsewhere, that you know the I think the story will come out ultimately, and it'll shed more light on why this all went down at this time. So that's it. Those are my thoughts. Congratulations to the Mailchimp team and props to them, and frankly to everyone who's involved in building such an incredible business. And again, it continues to show you the power of B two B SaaS. The power of building an incredible business with not that much cash. And then the value of those businesses because of the subscription revenue and the repeatability of the sales process and the momentum as you build that brand, we really are in the golden age of entrepreneurship, especially if you can figure out a way to build software. You build it once and you sell it over and over and over and it's just a matter of of scaling things. There's never been a better time in history to be an entrepreneur. That's it for this week. Thanks again for joining me. I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning.